Friends, before we uh, turn back to that portion of Scripture we read in Philippians, please uh, join me as we seek God in prayer. Lord, we uh, bow to you humbly aware of our, or partly aware of our, our feelings, um, aware that we are, are, are sinful, aware that we are in great need uh, of you, our, our, our chief need to know more of you, O oh God. We do pray um, at this moment um, that you would be our help, our aid. Uh, Lord God, we pray that you would soften us, that we would receive well uh, what you have to say to us. Uh, Help us uh, to hear, give us uh, the ears that we need to hear from you. Um, Lord God, as Crawford has uh, intimated, this is foolishness to the world. We know that it is your wisdom, your means. Oh, Lord, we pray then, would you communicate, would you speak to us that we might hear, be changed, and leave and serve you, to live for you, to be doers of your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, statistically speaking, if we're going by statistics, then the United Kingdom is presently a very unhappy place to be. Statistically, the UK is, generally speaking, unhappy. So the Office for National Statistics, it conducted this very extensive survey. Um, I think the dates were from April 2019 right through to March 2020. This big, long, extensive survey. And what did they find? they found a significant decline in both life satisfaction and a decline in contentment across the general population of our country. The UK, apparently an unhappy uh, place uh, to be. Now, you might be right now chewing over those dates. You're like, Andy, come on, what's that? April? 2019 and in March 2020, and you might be saying, well, it's obvious why. That was the beginning of the, the pandemic. No wonder people were unhappy. But no, because this survey was just the most recent in a very long line of surveys that all revealed the same thing. They revealed for years the people in the UK have been unhappy, and it is only apparently getting worse. That's out there. That is the world. Our concern is in here. So we're not talking about happiness. That's incredibly fleeting. We all know that. But what about St. Peter's? And what about joy? Is there in your life just now deep-seated, true joy? Are we a people of joy? Are we a rejoicing people Well, this evening we come to what is, I know, a a very well-known portion of Scripture, isn't it? One that doesn't just mention joy or throw out words like rejoicing. What does it do? Did you notice it's framed? It's framed with joy, begins with joy, has joy in the middle, ends with joy. And so perhaps you can see the prayer that we have as we approach this portion of Scripture. Our prayer, is it not? Our prayer. That tonight, as we encounter God in His words, He would remind us how we can be a people, even in the face of distress, even in the face of suffering, even in the face of some of our greatest fears. 
God might remind us how, as Christians, we can rejoice, and all because of our Lord Jesus. So, Philippians 1, 18 through to 26. Can I encourage you um, to please have this portion of Scripture open, even to those who are joining the live feed? We'll never know if you, uh, you, you go with us, but you can run to your bookshelf and get your Bible. Um, but if we could have this open, and if we can let the young people see a copy of Scripture as well. And let's, let's notice, first of all, joy in the face of our difficulties. That's the first thing that we need to consider here, joy in the face of our difficulties. Now, either because you know Philippians really, really well, uh, or because you just happened to be here uh, last Sunday evening, uh, I'm hoping that everybody in the room um, and those joining online are familiar with Paul's predicament. We know what's going on with Paul, don't we? Especially if you were here last week. Paul's been arrested, hasn't he? He's been arrested and he's in prison. Do you remember? He's in prison because he appealed to Caesar. Now, now what's happening right there? Think about this situation. Paul is awaiting the verdict of that appeal. Isn't that quite something to consider? So Paul can either be released and he can be freed, or what else can happen? The other side of it is that Paul might be executed. And Paul is there in that room, and he's chained up, remember we were saying, chained up like a dog, and he's waiting to find out life or death. Now, if there was ever a situation where you would not expect somebody to write a letter about joy, it's, it's a man in a situation like that, isn't it? And yet that is what he does. How is that even possible, friends? Well, what we see in this, the very first section here, what Paul does is he actually speaks about two expectations that he's got. Now, listen carefully. What he does is he speaks of two things he knows God is going to do through his present suffering. Everybody hear that? So he speaks about two expectations, two things he knows God is going to do through this horrible circumstance that he's in. This is true of Paul. But you're going to listen to this because this is true for you and for me as a Christian in our trials. What are these two things? Well, let's all look at them, shall we? Look with me at verse 20, first of all. At verse 20. You got it? I eagerly expect and hope, did you see the expectation, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. Now, listen, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. Now, we know a few things, do we? We, we know what type of hope he's talking about there. You know, cards on the table here, listen, I hope that Scotland win the European Championships. I hope we comfortably do that. I know it ain't going to happen, is it? But that's how we use that, that word, right? We hope for the... We, we all know, don't we? That's not what Paul is doing here. Like, this is, this is a sure, grounded expectation. So we know that. We also know this idea of shame. We've talked about this recently, haven't we? This is a certainty that Paul has, that he will not be found through this trial to have dishonored or, or abandoned his savior. We know that also. But 
What if that phrase, you, you got it, didn't you? Look at it. The, the end of verse 20. I am sure that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. What's he mean? Well, it's the idea, listen carefully, please, it's the idea that through this trial, Paul knows that Christ will be, wait for the word, Christ will be magnified. I think the younger people in the room, you guys, can help me out here. Because maybe in class and and so forth, you know what a telescope does. You know what a telescope does? We've got quite a lot of young people in. You all know that. Know this. Do you know that a telescope is different to a microscope, isn't it? So what does a microscope do? It takes a tiny little thing and it makes it look bigger. That's what a microscope does. Wait a minute. Telescope's different, isn't it? it? Let's say you're looking at a planet in a telescope. What are you doing? You're taking something that looks tiny, a planet, because it's so far away. And what does the telescope do? It makes that look grand, doesn't it? It actually shows you, a telescope shows you how that planet really is. You imagine looking at Saturn through a telescope. Imagine that, you, your mind would be blown, wouldn't it? You'd see the greatness of it, the, the grandeur, the vastness. You would see Saturn as it is. Friends, do you see here? I mean, how is it that the Apostle Paul can rejoice? Because he is so certain that God is going to use his present glory, his present suffering for the glory of Jesus Christ, whether it be execution or whether it be life. He knows God is going to use this. He's going to use it to magnify Jesus Christ. He's going to use it to display Christ so that other people who haven't seen it before, through Paul, through his suffering, they will see the greatness of Jesus. They will see Christ as he really is. Suffering used to magnify Jesus Christ does that not push us on. We said two things, didn't we? So let's look at it. Verse 19. Let's go back the way. Look at verse 19. I'll be sneaky, I think. Let's skip a little bit here. So how does it begin? Verse 19. For I know. We've got the certainty, don't we? The expectation. I know. Skip on a little bit. For I know that what has happened to me, do you see it? What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Um, I wonder if you've ever been to the uh, ice cream shop. That's around the corner from St. Peter's. Hugh is nodding. (laughs) The ice cream shop down at the corner. I have never seen anything like it in all my life. I have never seen so much choice in one shop. You see, if you're walking past, just look at the menu. There are eight million different options. And you just peer in and the assistant is standing there gleefully behind innumerable, countless varieties and flavors of ice cream. And you go in and your head is spinning. In a sense, it's been a bit like that for me this week in in sermon uh, preparation. Because there's a lot of talk about what Paul means. That this situation will turn out for my deliverance. And it's, it's like all the writers and all the authors and they'll sort of lay out their different flavor before you and your head is spinning and oh, what, what do I do? What do I do? Let's see if we can work it out. To do that, I, I just want to lay it before you to ask you, 
What was your first thought? Read it again. What do you think he's saying? For I know, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What do we think he's saying? Do, did you think he's saying, I'm sure I'm going to be released here. I'm really, really confident that, that I'm, I'm going to be exonerated. And, and, and I, I, you know, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Let me give, give you a, a couple of reasons why. I was asked earlier on why we read Job, why we were going to read Job 13. That was our earlier reading. Now, what was happening there? Do you notice that Paul alludes to it, almost quotes Job 13, the deliverance? Now, what's Job doing? Job, yes, he's talking about deliverance, but do you see the frame of reference for Job? It's a future, it's an ultimate vindication that he's thinking about. Do you see it? Looking ahead to a, a future time before God in the end when Job will be exonerated. Paul's using that. Paul's got that in view here. It's the first thing. The second thing I want you to consider is actually the word that Paul uses here. It's a Greek word. And as you can imagine, looking at who's in the front row, that there's a little bit of trepidation for me here when I go into the, the Greek words. But it's a, a word Paul uses here. Soteria. Now, we may have heard that word before in the life of the church because it's a word that can be translated deliverance, as we've read. But do we know what else it can be translated as? More commonly, more commonly translated salvation. I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my salvation. Do you see what Paul is saying? Like what Paul is doing at this point in Scripture is expressing great confidence that his chains and his trial will be used for spiritual good. That this horrible predicament, can you imagine his predicament? This horrible predicament, he is sure God is using this for his sanctification. As Paul goes through this misery, this horrible confinement, he is sure that God is using this to build him up. God is using this to grow him to mature him, to prepare Paul from that day for when his salvation will be revealed in a way, is it not very like Romans chapter 5? We know that, don't we? What does Paul say there? We can rejoice. We, you and I, can rejoice in our suffering. Why? Because it produces perseverance. Now, I, I don't know about you, I, I think this, this is, this is marvellous. I'm, I'm up here needing new glasses. <laughs> These are cloudy. I need new glasses. This section of Scripture is like getting new glasses. Do you see? They can take our trials and we can see them with new light, with new clarity, can't we? But, 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 but how does this happen? This is not automatic. How does God do this? Well, I was a bit sneaky earlier on and I missed out a bit of verse 19. I could ask you to look back at the bits that we missed out. Look at it, how crucial. I said, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. Isn't the middle bit critical? 
Paul reveals not only the source of how this works, you see it is by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit himself. Not only that, but look, look. Look at the instrument used. I mean, you have this colossus of the faith. You have this giant Paul. And in suffering, what is he relying upon? What is he looking to? What is he anticipating? He's anticipating even the prayers of his Christian friends. And surely that is a challenge for us and some peers. What, how did we start? We started with the unhappiness of the world. Aren't they unhappy? We know that. I think all of us know what a witness it would be if St. Peter stood the center of Dundee as a people who were filled with joy. But imagine the witness of filled with joy even in times of crisis and, and difficulty. If that's going to happen, what needs to occur for that to happen? We need to be a people praying for each other, praying for the people we know in this congregation who are really going through tough times, the people with illness and and bereavement, people who are made unemployed, people with relationship breakdown. We need to be praying for them and praying what? Like this. Praying that they would know from God a supply, a supply of his spirit. So we see joy in the face of our difficulties. Secondly, Amazingly, we see joy in the face of our death. Joy in the face of our death. Um, maybe you, you know what it's like to, 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 to write a sermon. A, a number of you do. Uh, maybe you don't. Um, one of the things that you, you end up doing is reading an awful lot. Uh, a lot of books and uh, sermons and all sorts of things to, 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 to write a sermon. Um, having done that this week, I reckon that this sermon that I'm going to preach is <laughs> the only sermon that has ever been preached on this portion of Scripture that does not quote Shakespeare's Hamlet <laughs> uh, at great length. Okay? Uh, the first sermon ever that does not, on this section, that does not quote that soliloquy. Uh, what is it? To be or not to be? Uh, that is the question. I'll leave it there. I won't go into it any more than that, and largely because I don't know anymore. Um, but I am not going to quote that, but maybe you can see why so many other sermons, writers, would quote that at this point. Do you see why? Like Paul having brought into focus the two options on the table. What were the options? Release execution. What are the options here? There's life or there's death. Having brought those into view, like Hamlet in that soliloquy, Paul begins to mull these over in this section as the section goes on, doesn't he? To be or not to to be life, the the merits, death, the merits. You, You see why people quote this. Now, at this point, you and I come to a verse that Everybody knows off by heart. Isn't that correct? It's a a verse that some of you learnt when you were very, very young. Uh, Let's face it, it it's a verse that will probably end up on some of our uh, gravestones as well. You'll see it in verse 21. Please look there. We know it, don't we? Oh, that famous verse. For to me to live is Christ, to die 
is gain. Do we know that verse? We do know that verse. If the kids don't know it, we will teach the children. Uh, there's a life verse for me to love as Christ to die as he. Now, we, we, we know it. What does it mean? Well, we can see that there's two sides to it. For me to live as Christ to die as gain. First, Paul speaks of the wonderful blessing of Christian living. Doesn't he? What does he say? For me to live is Christ. And, and you can see, surely, Christian friend, what he means by this, that for Paul, continuing in the, in the Christian life means ever opportunity to experience more of Jesus Christ each and every day. And you can almost feel the excitement emanating off the page. As every day passes for Paul, as every hour passes, what does it mean? It means more opportunity to know more of Christ. An opportunity to speak to Christ, right? Opportunity to, 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 to reap fruitful labor for Christ. And every believer in here knows why it's exciting for him, don't you? Paul knows that everything else in human existence is vapor. He knows everything else is fleeting. Everything else is just like that snowflake that falls at winter time onto your hand and it looks beautiful, doesn't it? For a split second and then it's, it's gone. Paul knows everything else is like that. Paul knows that it is only in Christ that there is true satisfaction, contentment. Only in Christ is the real joy to live. It's Christ. And then I think, to be frank, that we have to be very, very careful with the other side of the coin. To live is Christ. There is another side of the coin, isn't there? And again, I wonder if the young people would listen to your minister for a moment. Break up your ears for a second. You can help me out. Because I want to know from the young people, if you know the expression, you can just nod at me. Do you know the expression six and half a dozen? You heard that expression, six and half a dozen? Good nodding. Nodding on the balcony. Shaking heads from my children. Um, that's all right. That's okay, because when I was your age, I was totally confused by it as well, because I thought half a dozen was ten. <laughs> it's not ten, is it? No, it's not ten. So a dozen's twelve, right? We've got that. Half a dozen. Yeah, we've got six. So that expression, six and half a dozen, young people, we get the idea, do we? It's kind of things of equal value, six and half a dozen, we get it? Do we much in a muchness, six and a half a dozen? Friends, I think we've got to be very, very, very careful to avoid thinking that that is what Paul is saying here. As though he were saying that the, the Christian life and death for the Christian, you know, much of a, a muchness, things of, of, of equal significance. I mean, surely you've noticed, we all know this verse, surely we've all appreciated that it's asymmetric. And we, to live as Christ, to, to die is what? It's It's gain. And, and, and if we're unsure about this, look at verse 23. Paul could not make it any clearer. Look what he says to you. Death for you, Christian friend, is preferable. Death is 
better by far. Yes, for us, life is beautiful in a sense. We get to know more of Jesus Christ and speak to him, experience, deepen our relationship. But then death, for you, for me, it is better. Such are his trappings, such what awaits us. Now, I, I, I'm sure you agree there is no more countercultural a thought than, than death being better by far. How do we start? How do we start? The world is unhappy. The UK is unhappy. Why, why is our society unhappy this year? You know, it's so obvious that the coronavirus has exacerbated things, hasn't it? And what has it done? This pandemic has brought death clearer into focus. People are scared. People are anxious because of... What about last night on the television? Many of you probably heard about it, watched the football, and Christian Eriksen, this football in the prime of his life, drops down, has to be resuscitated. Most of the people watching, assuming for half an hour, this man in the prime of his life looks to be dead. Everyone panicking. Our own mortality brought into view. How is it possible that in here we could have a difference of opinion? How can death be gained? Well, to address that, I, I simply want to, I want to lay this before you. I want to ask you to, to engage with it. It's perhaps something we don't think about as often as we should. But Christian friend, what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? Do you think about it? Surely you do. And what is going to happen... The, the moment of, of your death. It's going to happen. That Christian Ericsson thing yesterday, that's going to happen to us. What's going to happen in the moment that you, you die? I used to work in a Christian bookshop in Inverness. And uh, one day, uh, myself and the, the members of staff began to discuss this very thing, what happens when we die. It must have been a slow day in the bookshop. <laughs> We began to discuss death. This is the attitude that, that one of my, my colleagues had. I wonder if it's how you're thinking about your death. Um, lovely Christian woman. And, and her view was that when we die, in that moment of death, there will be a sort of soul sleep. So there will be, for us, can we call it, being unconscious. We die and there is a nothingness, nothingness for a, a long time. But as a Christian, she believed that when Jesus Christ came back, that there would be a spark, there would be an awakening. And at that point, she would go to be with her Savior. Is that how you are thinking of your death, Christian friend? Do you not see how Paul corrects that view here? Look at verse 23 with me, please. What? It's so exciting about death for him. Why is it preferable by far? Don't you see it? He longs to depart, and what will happen at the moment, he will be with Christ in death. Do you see it? Not this idea of soul sleep, not this idea of nothingness. He's excited he goes to Christ. Why is death gain? Why is it? How can he, how can he say it's gain? Because in that moment, friend, when your eyes close in death 
and you have breathed your last, and you leave your, your loved ones behind, your, your eyes closed and dead, in that very second, your eyes will reopen, and they will open to the face of your Lord and the face of your Savior. Do you see it? In that very second, you will see him. You will see him. You will see his smile upon you. What does the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism say? Uh, question, we know at question 37, what does it say? It says of us that in our death, immediately, immediately, we pass into glory. What is it that our Lord says to the penitent thief on the cross? You know it. What's the time scale that Jesus speaks about in death? He says, today, today, not in the distant future, but now, you know, in, in a matter of hours, when you die today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it exciting? Doesn't it provide for us a perspective suddenly on our suffering and on our trials? Aren't we the most privileged and blessed of people? We have nothing to fear. So privileged. Our life just now, the opportunity to seek Christ, the Son of God. And then death comes. And what is it for us? It is gain. Gain for you. You shall in death see him. And in an in uninterrupted way, you shall be with Jesus Christ forevermore. So we see joy in the face of our disappointment. We see joy. Uh, joy in the face of our death. And then we close with joy in the faces of our nearest and dearest. Um, if you've been here for uh, some of the sermon series in, in Philippians, it's a bit disjointed, I give you that. But if you've been here for some of the series, you'll notice that a couple of times actually along the way, what we've tried to do is imagine how the people in Philippi receiving the letter how they might have responded to getting this piece of communication. Can you imagine that being in their number? Oh, we've got a letter from the Apostle Paul. Somebody read it out. And we've imagined that we suggested Lydia. <laughs> we suggested Lydia must have smiled reading of God's sovereignty and salvation. Because what does Acts say? Acts says the Lord opened her heart. What else did we suggest? The Philippian jailer. Do you remember last week? I think the Philippian jailer would have had a chuckle. It really would have, as he reads of Paul witnessing to the Roman guards. Don't you think the Philippian jailer would have loved that? As we close, I think we need perhaps to imagine at this point how the Philippians would have been feeling because they love him, don't they? I mean, they really have strong affection for the Apostle Paul. And what are they hearing? They, they seem from, he's contemplating death. Execution and death must have been disturbing for them, don't you? Don't you think? Well, in light of that, isn't it interesting to see what Paul does? If you look at it from verse 24, what Paul does is begin to sort of reassure his friends. Do you notice that? He, he does confirm this expectation that he won't be executed. That's, that's, that's lovely. That's marvelous. But it's actually the reason for this hope he's got that I, I want you to see. So please, if we look at verse 24, 
here's the question. What is the grounds for his hope that you'll be released? Do you see? Isn't it something? It's for them. It's for their sakes. He's, do you see the idea? He's sure that he will be freed. Why? Because he knows God's got a work for him to do amongst the Philippians. He's sure he's going to be free because I know I've got a work to do amongst you. I've got a ministry to continue amongst you. And what, <laughs> what is it that he knows God is going to use him to bring to the Philippians? Have a guess. Come on. Look at verse 25. Look at it. He knows the need from Paul. Joy. 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 More joy. And that fuels his confidence. Now, we're coming into land. We end with us. But I need to ask you. I mean, we've gone through the section. Come on. What is your impression of the Apostle Paul in this section of Scripture? And what is your impression of this man? I mean, is it, is it not his incredibly selfless attitude? Think about where he is. Think about what he's facing. And you've read nothing tonight of his real concern for himself. Aren't you with me? I mean, what an incredibly selfless attitude. What is his preoccupation? Is it for himself? His preoccupation is first for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and then for the glory of his church. So you, you know what he wants. You know, you, you know his desire. His desire is to depart. What does he do with that desire? He puts it away, puts it to the side and hear what you're reading. No, no, I put my own desire away. I, I, I'm here for the glory of Jesus Christ and through his church. Isn't it amazing? And so I need to ask you, if you're a Christian here, quite simply, as you read this, are you not convicted of your sin this evening? I am. I tell you, struggled with this all week. You see why? You know, each day, uh, having to ask of myself, is that, is that my heart really? I mean, do I have that zeal and all-consuming passion for Jesus Christ? Do I have that selfless attitude to Christ's church? Do, do you see? I mean, is that true of me? Is it true for you? You know, in the middle of the night when you cannot sleep, that's happened to just too many of us just now, right? All the stresses and strains of life. Where does your mind go for comfort? What do you consider at that point? What is your passion? I mean, is it leisure at this time of year? Is it what we can do outside? Is it the holiday that's coming up? Do you meditate upon this sort of thing? Is it material things, that building project, the car? That, what is it? Can you say, no, no, none of that for, for me to live it's him, it's Christ. He is my everything. He's my all-consuming passion, my preoccupation. Can we really say that? Friends, perhaps it is tonight that what's happening is God is driving us to our knees as a congregation. That we might even this evening call out to him and say, please change us. Please make our hearts warm to Christ. Please, oh God, renew us. Pour out your spirit upon us that we might concern ourselves with Jesus Christ and his glory evermore each day. And then I end where we started. We talked about unhappiness. 
But we talked about the unhappiness of the world. So I wonder if there are people in this room this evening who are counted amongst that number. That those, because you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, that tonight you are part of the world. If you're not trusting in Christ, you've got bad news and you've got good news. The bad news is really simple. None of this is for you. This whole section of Scripture, if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, this is not for you. Paul is writing of himself. He is writing of the church. He is writing to the Christians. And maybe you shrug your shoulders at that and say, so what? Listen to me. It means for you, death is not gain. When your eyes close in death, they do not awaken to the smiling face of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are rejecting God and the free offer of salvation at such a cost at Calvary, if you reject that, as you close your eyes in death, it awaken, you awaken to condemnation and punishment for rejecting God. That's the bad news. The good news is, friend, it does not need to be like that. The book of Hebrews makes it very, very clear what Jesus Christ has done by his redemptive work. He has abolished death. He's destroyed death. Jesus Christ at that cross has removed the sting of death. He has, he has faced punishment for our sins in our place. And if you only go to him tonight, if you go to him in repentance and belief, there's something on offer this evening from God in the gospel. Do you know what it is? Soteria. Can you remember? On offer tonight. Deliverance. Mm. On offer tonight in Christ is salvation. Friend, will you not go to Jesus Christ? Go and find in him what we have found. And as all the Christians in here would affirm, we have found in Jesus Christ inexpressible, wonderful, eternal joy. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord our God, we do worship you for we are utterly ill-deserving. There is not one of us in this room who has earned or merited your favor. We praise you for what you have done and the way that you have destroyed the one who holds the power over uh, death. We thank you for the great implication and victory of Calvary that we, your people, in death will never face punishment and condemnation uh, for our sin. Oh Lord, we pray that we would go from this place with renewed hope to face our suffering, knowing that you are active in it. It is not without purpose. It is not empty. You are active. You are building up your people. Help us to be brave and courageous. Eh, all for the name, the glory, for the honor of Jesus Christ. Amen.